Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you very much, Sue, and thank you, Sarah, and the band for leading us um, so helpfully in worship. Right, so I'd like to do something to get us underway. I mean, they're having a party next door, clearly. Hear the, uh, the laughter and the cheers from there. So we need to get going as well. So um, it's a very simple thing I'm going to ask of you. Everyone in this room will be able to do it, okay? I'm not asking anything, asking anything of you you can't do. Um, I want you to touch your nose. Great, thank you. Well, apologies to anyone um, who's visiting the church. And uh, for the first time, you're wondering what you've come to. You know, you never guess, guess what those weirdos down at the Baptist church do. They touch their noses. But have you ever asked yourself why people, why we do things people ask us to do? Well, there are all sorts of reasons why we do things people ask us to do. Let's imagine a policeman arrives um, in the middle of my talk this morning and he flashes his, his warrant and says you need to clear the building. We would clear the building because he is a man with authority. Or imagine, let's hope this doesn't happen, someone in the room here has a heart attack and one of our doctors or nurses says, just clear, clear some space for me so I can, can help this person. We would do it, wouldn't we? Because that person has the expertise to know what's appropriate in that moment. Or when Sarah says, let's, let's sing this another time, or let's sit down or stand up, depending on your preference, and we do it because she has a status this, evening, uh, this morning as a, as a worship leader. So why did you touch your nose, if you did? I noticed some of you didn't, by the way. That's going in my little black book. But if you did, well, why did you? Well, was it the force of my personality? Unlikely. Maybe you did it to encourage me. That poor chap on the stage, if no one touches their nose, he's going to look a right burke. So just, just to make him feel better. Or maybe we're playing temporary roles. You know, for the next half an hour, hour, who knows. <laughs> I'm the one speaking, and you're the one listening, hopefully. Is that what's going on? Or maybe, maybe you want to hear from God, and you think, actually, actually, I'm up for anything today, anything that might put me in a place to hear from God. Or maybe you just had an itch on your nose, and that was an appropriate moment to scratch that itch. So there's so many reasons that we might do what someone asks us to do. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, why is that a blank screen? That is very odd. Hmm. I'm not sure what's going on there. What about Paul and the, and the Corinthians? Why should the Corinthians listen to Paul? Why should they pay him any attention? Why should they listen to all of the things he's encouraging them to do in this letter? And what we've been trying to say over the course of this series is that his message and his person and his authority are being challenged by a subset of people in Corinth. And so he needs to respond to that because he has their vested interests at heart. Why should they listen to him instead of those who Paul labels false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ? Chapter 11, verse 13. Well, in our passage, Paul picks up where he left off 
Last time, um, uh, where we left off, last time at least, at the end of chapter 11, and continues to commend himself to the Christians in Corinth as someone they should listen to. So if you want the background to chapter 11, listen to Andy's message from last week. That's on our website. But here in chapter 12, Paul appeals to them on the basis of, of four things. Firstly, his revelation. Secondly, his weakness. Thirdly, his miracles. And fourthly, his attitude. And you may find it helpful to refer to the passage that Sue read to us in 2 Corinthians 12, 1, 1, 6, 5. So first of all, his revelation. So the other apostles were, by and large, the disciples that we read about in the Gospels. They were Peter and John and James and the others, all of whom had spent time with Jesus before his death and resurrection. Now, of course, Paul can't say that of himself. He'd never met Jesus in the flesh. But for the sake of the gospel, in order to persuade the Corinthians that their trust in Paul is not misplaced, he opens up about a very personal experience that he'd normally be very reticent about sharing. In fact, it's so sacred to him that he describes it in the third person, as if he was talking about someone else. And he says, 14 years earlier, this person, Paul, had a divine encounter. Now, one commentator notes that this places this experience several years after Paul's conversion. So it's not the Acts chapter 9 revelation that Paul is describing here, dramatic though that was. This experience Paul is referring to is even more incredible than that conversion encounter. We sometimes uh, use words like uh, divine and heavenly, don't we? We say that, that dessert was divine. This location is heavenly. But Paul had a genuinely divine encounter. Let's look at our, our passage. He describes being, describes being caught up to the third heaven in verse 2. Caught up to paradise in verse 4. It was such a powerful experience, he can't even tell if it was a physical one or a spiritual one. He heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell, verse 4. Now, Paul doesn't really want to talk about himself at all, but it's as if he's saying, look, Corinthians, if you want to listen to someone, you ought to be to someone like that. Someone who's been there and done it. Someone who can speak from a place of authority. And we understand that principle, I think, don't we? So I could give you a talk about how to sail. You might listen to me out of politeness. But Mark, for example, who's the director of Christian Youth Enterprises, our sailing centre and much more down on the coast at Chidham, could give the same talk. He could use the same slides. But you would listen to him, not just out of politeness, but because he knows what he's talking about. He's been there, he's done it, he's sailed. He can speak from authority. 
or he's not here this morning, which is just as good because it might look as if I'm giving him business, I could give you a talk that would leave you on the edge of your seats about mortgages. I know, I know, that's for another time, another Sunday. Um, or Guy, Guy Appleby could do the same. We could say that, use the same words, use the same slides, but you'd listen to him because he's someone who is speaking from experience. And as this is being recorded, other mortgage and insurance advisors are available. No other sailing centres. <laughs> no, exactly. No other sailing centres. There is only one sailing centre you're allowed to go to, and that's down the road at Chidham. Paul has actually had a divine encounter. He knows what he is talking about. And he wants the Corinthians to know that he knows what he's talking about. But he doesn't want to boast about his encounters with God, even though they are true. So he quickly moves on from that and says, actually, there's a second basis on which I want to appeal to you. And it's the basis of his weakness. Verses 7 to 10. In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Well, many a page has been written about Paul's thorn in the flesh. What was he talking about? Was it persecution? Was it some physical or mental affliction? People have suggested eye trouble, attacks of fever, stammering speech, epilepsy. Was it some form of spiritual um, harassment? We don't know, is the short answer to that. But there are some things that are clear. So let's look at what's clear. And first of all, Paul's suffering, because of his, this thorn in the flesh, was purposeful. Look at it carefully. He believed it was given to him in order to keep him from becoming conceited. Verse 7. Now we're not too keen on the idea that God would permit Satan to give us something that would distress us. We're even less keen on the idea that a loving God would give us something that would distress us. But whichever way we take it, the thorn is given, Paul says, and given for a reason. Apparently Paul's humility was more important than Paul's pain. Secondly, Paul's pleading prayer for relief went unanswered. So instead of taking the torment away, God provided the grace to endure it, and with it a promise. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So a flower in the desert stands out so much more than a flower in a beautiful garden. God's power stands out so much more in our weakness. Thirdly, Paul embraced his pain for the sake of the power. I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
For Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Phil, could you move my slides on? I'm having a bit of trouble this morning. Thank you. So this word delight translates a Greek word, eudikeo. It's the same word we come across at Jesus' baptism when a voice from heaven says, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So the word means to think well of, to approve, to consent, to take delight in, to be well pleased. Now, Paul wasn't a masochist. He didn't enjoy the pain itself, but he welcomed it because of what it achieved in him. Strength through Christ's power. Next slide, please, Phil. An American revivalist preacher once wrote, God uses broken things. It takes broken soil to produce a crop. Broken clouds to give rain, broken grain to give bread, broken bread to give strength. It's the broken alabaster box that gives forth perfume. It is Peter, weeping bitterly, who returns to greater power than ever. God has not promised skies always blue flower-strewn pathways all our lives through. God hasn't promised <clears throat> sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. Can you advance it for me, please, Phil? But God has promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way. Grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. So Paul commends himself to the Corinthians as someone they should listen to. He appeals to them on the basis of his revelation, first of all, his weakness, which results in God's power. And then thirdly, next slide please, Phil, on the basis of his miracles. Verse 12. I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. So he commends himself as an apostle. Now, an apostle was someone who was chosen and commissioned by God to be a witness to Christ and his resurrection. An apostle was given Christ's authority to proclaim the gospel message in word and back it up through action. Not social action, or political action, but through miracles and signs, just like Jesus did. Next slide, please, Phil. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, said, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. And then later on we read that everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Miracles, wonder, wonders and signs were part of the accreditation, the official certification 
of an authentic messenger from God. And Paul says that these things validate his own genuineness as an apostle. They were evidence that his calling was God's calling, not his own. Next slide, please, Phil. So there were signs, pointers to God. There were wonders, things that caused people to sit up and take notice and ask what's going on here to cause awe. And there were miracles, powerful acts, literally powers. Three words all kind of mean different facets of the same thing. But essentially, this is what's going on. God did did things through Paul, miracles that ordinary men and women couldn't do, things that pointed to God, signs, and left them open-mouthed in wonder, wonders. Next slide, please, Phil. Let's imagine you're having some work done on your house. You would employ an architect, wouldn't you? I hope so. Well, how would you know they were the real deal? How would you know you could trust them? Well, they'd have some qualifications. They would be members of the Royal Institute of British Architects, or something equivalent. They could probably point to projects they've been involved in and give you testimonials. They could show you the plans they'd drawn up recently. These are the marks of a true architect. Paul says to the Corinthians, next slide please, Phil, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. Paul is saying to them, you need to listen to me because I am genuine. I am authentic. And by the way, before we move on, notice that word including. So the marks of an apostle apostle include signs, wonders, and miracles. On their own, miracles are not enough. The Bible makes the same point in a number of places, like Deuteronomy 13, 1 Corinthians 13, and 2 Thessalonians 9, for example, where Paul says the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. Satan will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the liar. So the devil can perform signs and wonders. In and of themselves, they are not evidence of God at work. But Paul isn't commending himself on the basis of miracles alone. He's appealed to them on the basis of his revelation, of his weakness, and his miracles. And then lastly, next slide please, Phil, on the basis of his attitude, verses 14 to 18. And he says, first of all, next slide please, that he won't be a burden. He's actually very insistent about this, almost quite troubled about it. So he says in verses 13 and 16, he says, look, I've not been a burden in the past, but he's already said that twice in chapter 11. And in verse 14, he he says he's not going to be a burden this time around either. It's the point he really wants to press home, that he's not going to be a burden. And he's speaking about a financial burden. So he wasn't one of those celebrity Christians who got rich from his fame. He didn't didn't expect to have his private jet expenses covered, to be put up in luxury accommodation, to get a fat fee for speaking on the stage. 
quite the opposite, as he says to the Thessalonians. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked day and night, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. This was Paul's attitude to all of the churches. He didn't want to be a drain on their resources. The opposite is true, verse 15. I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. For Paul, it was a joy to serve, a privilege to give himself for the Corinthian believers. Pioneer missionary David Livingstone once wrote in his journal, People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice, which is simply paying back a small part of the great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice, which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. And Paul would echo those thoughts. He won't be a burden, he'll be a blessing. He'll count it a blessing to be a blessing. And secondly, under the heading of attitude, next slide please, Phil. Paul wants the Corinthians to know that he's not coming as a big shot preacher who demands respect, but as a parent who wants the best for their children. Verse 14. What I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children shouldn't have to save up for their parents. That'd be nice though, wouldn't it? Just slipping that in there. Children shouldn't have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So all of these reasons Paul is putting forward for why they should listen to him are not so that he can boss them around, not so that he can take advantage of them, but so that he can be a father for them, to love them, to care for them, and to serve them. Jim Collins, author of Good to Great, a book describing how companies go from being good to great companies, wrote this about the very best leaders. He said, they channel their ego needs away from themselves and into the larger goal of building a great company. It's not that they have no ego or self-interest. Indeed, they are incredibly ambitious. But their ambition is first and foremost for the institution not for themselves. Now, he was writing about a business environment, obviously, but actually, I think if you replace the words company and institution with words like kingdom and church, I think Paul would be pretty much on the same page. Church leaders channel their ego needs away from themselves and into the larger goal of building God's kingdom. Their ambition is first and foremost for the kingdom, not for themselves. Like the slogan that um, many of our volunteers have on the back of their t-shirts, not to be served, 
but to serve. Like Paul, who appeals to the Corinthians by the humility and gentleness of Christ. Paul wants to serve them. He wants what's best for them, like a good parent would. So Paul has commended himself to his readers, to his listeners, in four ways. He says, you should listen to me on the basis of the revelations that I've had, my weakness, my miracles, or my attitude. And just to remind you, this has given him no pleasure. He really didn't want to say any of this, but he felt he had to for the good of the church. He's put himself in this uncomfortable position of talking about himself. Because when he's concerned that when he comes, when he arrives at Corinth, things are not going to be as he's really hoping they're going to be. So to pinch some verses from next week's message that Paul will bring to us, he says, Everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. And you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you. And I'll be grieved over many who've sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. He's worried. He's worried about what he is going to find when he turns up in Corinth. And so he wants them to listen to them, to listen to him. And if it takes bigging himself up to get them to listen to him, even though he doesn't want to do it, if that's what it takes, that's what he'll do to get a hearing. So what does all this mean for us? Well, hopefully as we've gone through, some little thoughts have prompted thoughts of your own, which you'll take away, take away and will be helpful to you. Maybe, for example, learning from Paul to embrace what's difficult so that God's power might be more evident. Maybe that's a takeaway thought. Or sharing Paul's attitude of wanting the best for the church, like a good parent wants the best for their children. Maybe that's a takeaway thought. But my two main takeaway points, uh, one I think should be clear by now, um, the other maybe less so. And they're from two perspectives. So from the perspective of Paul the sender and from the perspective of the Corinthians, the receivers. So from Paul the sender... This is an example of someone putting God's kingdom first. Even if in doing so he has to do some things he'd rather not do. Paul didn't want to talk about himself. He really didn't want to talk about himself. It's the last thing he wanted to do. But in this chapter, and in the verses preceding, chapter 11 we looked at last week, he goes through this unpleasant exercise for the good of the church. Not to be served, but to serve. So a question for us to take away, maybe, is what unpleasant things might we be being called to do for the sake of the kingdom? 
That's from Paul's perspective. But then from the perspective of the Corinthians, the receivers, I think there's a challenge here, and it really applies to the whole letter. It's not just this passage. It's about receiving the message. We don't know how this letter went down in Corinth. It's critical in places. It's challenging in places. And I don't know about you, but I can get very defensive when someone challenges me. We can get very uppity with the suggestion that someone should dare to presume to tell us how we should live. But of course, that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Or more correctly, God is doing through Paul. He's saying, this, this is what God expects of you. This is what God expects of us. So may we be those who receive the word of God as a word from God to help us grow. If it hurts momentarily, then so be it. But let's take the word of God as something that's given to us to help us grow and become more like Christ. Amen.